Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. That Bank of England decision drops right now. Rates unchanged at 0.5%. The Bank of England's asset purchase programme also unchanged at £435 billion. The corporate bond target also left unchanged at £10 billion. The headlines, they cross as follows from Threadneedle Street. A vote of 7-2 to to keep interest rates unchanged at 0.5% in line with the previous decision. The Bank of England seeing the inflation rate calling faster to reach the 2% goal in two years. Sterling weakening into the decision over the last couple of weeks as Governor Carney backed off from the idea of an interest rate hike and the economic data that came out in the preceding couple of weeks confirmed that stance. Sterling at the moment off the back of this decision £1 buys you $1.3562. It rolls over to pretty much unchanged on the session after trading higher a little bit earlier on. As far as the market is pricing in the potential for a hike, the money market in the UK, pricing out a Bank of England rate hike for 2018. That's the story then coming from the Bank of England. The Bank of England and moving to uh, leave rates unchanged at 0.5% and UK money markets pricing out a Bank of England rate hike for 2018. So BOE, leaving rates unchanged, the vote 7 to 2 and the Bank of England seeing inflation calling faster to uh, reach 2% goal in uh, in, 20, in two years, Tom. John, what does that headline mean? Which one? Prices out. That means they're not they're not predicting a rate rise in 2018. The money markets are no longer yeah. pricing a hike this year. Is that what that means? That's exactly okay. what that means. After pricing in a hike, um, after the last inflation report, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Nera Chaich. Um, Nera on the ground outside of Bank of England Street, just uh, just around the corner from Threadneedle Street. Uh, the latest headlines, Nera. Yeah, John. So my first takeaway from seeing these headlines is it's perhaps less hawkish than some in the markets were expecting, right? Because what we were looking with this vote split, some were saying it could be a hawkish push the pound higher if we get a 6-3 vote. We've got a 7-2 to keep interest rates on hold today. And then the BOE seeing inflation cooling faster to reach the 2% goal in two years. I would take a slightly dovish reading on that. Also saying only limited tightening needed in the coming years. However, it is still saying that ongoing rate heights are required to control inflation. So that perhaps a little bit of balance coming in there. Uh, and But another key thing in the headlines is about this a little bit of softness in the first quarter. So the BOE seems to think that that was only temporary and that we're going to see a little bit more of a pickup in the second quarter and beyond. I'm really pleased to say that we can bring in Paul Tucker now, former Deputy Bank of England Governor, Senior Fellow at Harvard, and author of his new book, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Paul, great to have you with us in New York. No, thanks thanks for having me here. So let's begin with, the, with <coughs> the book, the essence of the book, and we can get away from the news flow of the Bank of England for a moment. What is the essence of the book? The essence of the book is that if you think back over our lifetimes, all three of us, and the lifetimes of many of the people listening to you, is that more and more of the decisions that are taken by government are taken by people who we didn't elect. 
And the central bankers have become the poster boys and girls of, of this. But it goes well beyond that. Regulators in almost every field. And the judges as well. The judges in this country, the United States, have always been powerful. They're now powerful absolutely everywhere. And the, and the book is about how do we make this okay? How do we make this okay for democracy and the things that we really deeply believe about the way we should be governed? Well, Sir Tucker, the implication here being that it's not okay currently. It, it's that we're, we're taking risks. We're taking risks. I mean, the last time the, the world was hit by anything as bad as the recent financial crisis was obviously the Great Depression. Who did the heavy lifting then? President Roosevelt and the Congress. Who did the heavy lifting this time? The Federal Reserve. That time around, who designed the financial system, redesigned the financial system? Congress, yeah. Parliament in Westminster. Who redesigned it this time? People like me, Mario Draghi, um, Tim Geithner, Mark Carney. Um, this is a big change. And so I don't, I don't regret the things that have been done. I think we did a good job, actually. But there need to be limits on this. So let's talk about the consequences. What are the negative potential consequences that you explore in the book? Um, whether central banks end up making decisions about who benefits and who doesn't. I mean, distributional questions. Um, part of the problem with QE, relying so heavily on QE, is that it's been bad for people that rely on the income from savings. It's been good for people who are long financial assets and they've got richer. It's not. It's been pretty good for people um, on low incomes because there's been less unemployment. Okay, just to push back a little bit, some people would say you're not seeing yields spike higher in the U.S. right now, even as the U.S. as the Federal Reserve moves away from its unprecedented stimulus. Doesn't this mean mission accomplished, especially as inflation moves towards its target? Doesn't this seem rather uh, benign? I think I think they've done I think they've done and are doing a pretty good job, um, but they but at what cost? to distortions in the economy, in this economy, more than in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, it would have been better to have more fiscal stimulus um, some years ago, not now, with expenditure on the infrastructure of the economy, improving the airports, improving the roads, things that visibly need doing, and with a steeper yield curve throughout, and less and less froth in the financial markets, less reliance. The Fed's had no choice, by the way. Yeah. If the politicians sit on their hands the Fed must be the U.S. cavalry. I think a lot of our listeners will agree with you that this Federal Reserve and the actions of the last 10 years have had incredible effects on wealth distribution. And I think for many people, they're now thinking about what does this mean for central bank independence? Could we see a real challenge to central bank independence because of the power they've accumulated over the last decade? Do you think that's possible, Paul? Yeah, I think it's possible. I mean, the way we're governed has a really basic thing, which is that when we're fed up, we vote out the government. Yeah. We can't vote out the central bankers. But the problem isn't so much with the central bankers. It's that elected politicians um, have got used and are attracted by sitting on their hands, knowing that the central banks will fill the void. I mean, the, the, the deep message of the book to Congress, to parliaments in Europe and around the world is step up to the plate. Do what only you can do. Well, let's talk about some practical things the central banks can do for themselves to protect themselves. We live in an era, I think it's Ray Dalio's phrase, Lisa, radical transparency. Mm. And central bankers certainly live in an era of radical transparency. We just sat through a news conference with Governor Carney. It was only a number of years ago. We didn't have a regular news conference from the Federal Reserve. We now hear from these individuals all the time. 
Do we have too much transparency, Paul? And is that part of the problem? Transparency is important because the age of mystique has gone and people would be angry and resentful. But whether it's monetary policy or competition policy or utility regulation, the unelected people need to focus their message on people at home, households, businesses around. And, and it's easy to get tied up in what does the City of London want to know today? What does Wall Street want to know today? And that's important. Yep. I spend a lot of my career dealing with I with, spend with every that. morning doing that. Um, but it's, it's not the most important thing. So do you talk to a lot of politicians? I talk to some around the world, yeah, in this country and elsewhere. Are you optimistic that really anyone will change, that, that people will get off their hands? So that's a great question, and it's a question I often meet in this country, as though what I'm proposing is for implementation next week. My experience of, <laughs> of, of public office results. Is, is, that, is that you can change the climate of opinion yeah. over a period of years. You really can. And if I had, any, if I had one criticism of the Federal Reserve, um, it would be that, that they're not patient enough and stick to a strategy of we will change the climate of opinion around this. And I think they could do that. And, and you know, you need to drive greater expectations of Congress. So, Paul Tucker, um, it wasn't so long ago that many people were disappointed because they wanted you to, uh, to go from being the deputy BOE governor to the governor of the Bank of England. There will be a spot coming up in the summer of next year. Would you be interested in filling that spot? Paul? Well, I think I got lucky because I, I got to go to Harvard and I got to write this book and it, it's been wonderful. I mean... That your your listeners can't see how long the book is. I, I can tell. I, I can tell that it's, it is it's, a tome. It's doorstop-esque. It's, it's, it covers a lot of territory. It's not just about monetary policy and stuff. It's about all sorts of things, and I've absolutely loved it. And the big question for me right now, other than marketing this book is do I have a second book in me, a, a book that I really want to write? Well, we'd love to read it, but is there a future in central banking for, for Paul Tucker? There, there's, there's a future in kind of marketing this book. Paul I, Tucker. <laughs> I could tell that you really wanted to be in that seat that Mark Carney currently is in answering those questions. I just could feel it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I think you're delusional. I think you're delusional. I think your listeners should be disturbed by this. Um, <laughs> I, can tell, I can say from experience, speaking to many economists in the United Kingdom, Paul, that there are many people that would like you to fill that seat in the summer of next year. And I, I understand why you might not want to commit to to anything in the future. And we're all going to enjoy this book and hopefully there'll be more to come, Paul. So thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Paul Tucker, the former Deputy Bank of England Governor, Senior Fellow at Harvard and the author of his new book, Unelected Power, The Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. Really important topic, Lisa. I was just going to say the same thing. This is so crucial, and it's not something super simple or immediate, but it has changed the way uh, that our entire economy has been structured. Really fascinating. Yeah, and important. you see it in elections, political issues, whether it's the UK over Brexit, here in the United States, that central bank independence is, is not something that can be taken for granted because we do face a real challenge over the last couple of years. James there. Donald's going to join us now. Lazard Asset Management, Head of Emerging Markets and Portfolio Manager. James, help us out. How difficult is it to navigate emerging markets at the moment? Uh, it is It is pretty difficult because you've got this very strong period uh, for the dollar. Uh, and uh, 
you've got certain markets, and you've named Argentina and Turkey, but I would also add there have been other ones, I think Philippines and Indonesia, and there are other markets that have some of the same characteristics that are being put under a lot of pressure. And uh, so one has to take these things into account, particularly during a period like this. So it's a it's a pretty difficult area um, to navigate right now. So, James, how are you navigating it? Well, um, <clears throat> from an emerging market equity point of view, um, we look at macroeconomic and political risks and factor those into final price um, expectations. And so it's all part of our valuation well, process. My point is, you know, given the fact that we've gotten all of these dislocations, are you allocating big money right now? Are you saying, you know what, right now, Turkey sold off so much, you can't lose if you throw a little bit of money at Turkish financials, you know, or look at Argentina, given the fact that people have pulled away so much, and that the fundamentals still look okay, you know what, let's go. Has there been that kind of attitude at all? Well, we have a long term time horizon. So we are uh, invested in in those markets to some degree, and uh, and and we think there are some really big opportunities there, and we see the potential for a real stabilization in some of these markets. I think Argentina has, is is a long way there in terms of stabilization. I think there's some some more work that has to take place in Turkey, but um, but the, from from our vantage point, um, we think that. Uh, there should be a period of stabilization coming about relatively soon. James, do you see more stabilization coming about on the equity side, on the debt side, on the FX side? Where are you looking for that stability? Well, I think um, I think in Argentina we should see some better uh, currency stabilization. I think the equity markets, to a large degree, have been held back by the currency instability. So we've had some stocks, for instance, some companies in Argentina that have released fairly impressive results, but yet their stock prices have faltered because of the currency situation. Um, and I would say the same thing is true to a large degree in Turkey across that market. And investors, particularly foreign investors, are unprepared to uh, to enter some of those stocks or add to those positions without um, better visibility in terms of the currency stabilizing. What about emerging markets, uh, local currency versus hard currency debt? Well, I think that in the immediate term, clearly the local currencies are under some pressure. So but does that uh, it's a matter of opportunity. I think it does. I think it does. I think it's a matter of how you move into that. Uh, I think on a on a valuation basis, I would say that emer uh, that emerging market local currency is is inexpensive, whereas uh, hard currency is is relatively expensive. So just taking a step back, one thing that a lot of people have been concerned about is that so much money has gone into emerging markets, uh, debt and equity, frankly, through ETFs, through indexed funds, a lot of investors seeking it as an alternative uh, to U.S. high-yield bonds. The concern being if you get a long enough stretch of weakness, you're going to see massive outflows that indiscriminately punish all emerging markets. Are you concerned that we're hitting that tipping point, given the stronger dollar uh, over the past few weeks, and that you're going to see much bigger withdrawals? I think it depends on the trajectory of interest rates in the U.S. 
Uh, I think if interest rates look like they're going to have to go up at a sharper degree than they are uh, or have been anticipated to, um, and if we have more than, say, four interest rate rises per annum of 25 basis points each, now, if we have much more than that, that is going to be uh, that is going to attract money away from emerging markets. Uh, but if it's if it's more gradual in nature, my expectation would be that uh, this instability will start to uh, to decrease and uh, we'll get some of this hot money that you talked about out of the market. I think quite a lot of it has already left the markets, really? and then uh, we probably see a fairly big opportunity. All right. So uh, going forward, I, I do want to hit on Argentina because it's this kind of story John and I were just talking about how um, they defaulted four times. We keep getting it wrong. <laughs> on their debt I mean, in, we just in keep getting it wrong. years. I mean, come on. Why did people even lend them? And then a hundred year bond. I mean, at the time they sold this and people were like, Really? Who's going to buy that? And a lot of people did. And sure enough, it's trading below 90 cents in the dollar. Uh, so are we just going to see the same story over and over again with Argentina? Or is this time really different? I would give them um, more of the benefit of the doubt on this situation. I think the reason why uh, they were able to do that issue is because the Macri government has a credible team and a credible plan. Um, I think where they may have tripped up uh, has been uh, keeping interest rates a bit lower than they should have yeah. uh, and, and putting a tax on local currency debt. Those things at the margin may have really worked against them. But um, as far as I can see, it's a, it's a credible government with credible plans. And uh, I think there's a a pretty good chance that they're going to be able to succeed. Is it a credible central bank? Yes, I think it's a credible central bank as well. How so, I think, uh, I think uh, because I think that uh, they have done a huge amount to uh, improve uh, their information and their um, policies since the last government. One has to remember that under the previous government, yeah. Uh, there was um, real question marks about the data that they were using. The one thing I think you could critique the central bank over is that they kept rates lower than they probably should have, and that has uh, has aggravated the situation. So, James, let me finish up with a final question. If you say it's a credible one, is it an independent one? Um, I would say I think you have to look at this in in in, in gray areas. I think it's reasonably independent. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we we nothing nothing in our world or very little in our world is black and white. It's very and true. So I think there is a degree of independence with that bank. Certainly much more than it used to have, um, and it. Uh, uh, so I think that is a positive. Hey, James, great to have you with us on the program. A difficult time, and I'm sure you've been terrifically busy. So thank you for giving us some of your valuable time this morning on Bloomberg Surveillance. James Donald, Lazard Asset Management, Head of Emerging Markets and uh, Portfolio Manager. I'm not sure how many people would agree with how credible the I Argentinian Central Bank is at the moment, but the certainly same some faith. Thing. I mean, you're seeing the peso completely fall out of bed, despite the fact that they raised interest rates to 40%. Yeah. And isn't that the problem Turkey's got as well? Central yeah. bank credibility at the moment.
Uh, there has been a lot going on around the world outside the U.S. as uh, Mike Pompeo heads to North Korea, uh, given the fact that China and the U.S. are it appears to be heading toward additional trade pressures. And then meanwhile, a 92-year-old won the election in Malaysia. To help us understand all of this, I am pleased to bring in Meredith Sumter, Eurasia Group Head of Research, Strategy and Operations. And uh, my co-host, Pim Fox, uh, joins me as well. Uh, he is in the office bright and early. Meredith, thank you so much for being here. I want to just start with the big topic, which is China-U.S. relations and Mike Pompeo trip to North Korea. Can you talk a little bit about what China has been doing behind the scenes with respect to the uh, to the U.S.-North Korea negotiations? Because President Trump keep, keeps mentioning how great China has been and how this factors into trade talks. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on, Lisa. So Beijing has been watching very closely the interplay between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. And uh, Xi Jinping himself has taken great pains to ensure that China has not been left out of those conversations. And so you will note that Xi Jinping met with Kim Jong-un in Dalian um, earlier this week to check in with that North Korean leader and probably to align on what that North Korean leader is looking to accomplish with his upcoming summit with President Trump. I would also expect that Xi Jinping will look to meet with Kim Jong-un following um, that summit with President Trump. This is what we call in Chinese diplomacy book ending, uh, which would position China to try to influence the implementation of any of the decisions um, or agreements that may or may not be reached at that, at that upcoming meeting. Meredith, is there any chance that uh, the Chinese government will be able to leverage this advance in the relationship between North Korea, South Korea, and the United States into a change in U.S. trade policy? Because the United States has blocked the use of U.S. components in some of the manufacturing processes. For example, ZTE Corp. uh, has halted uh, its uh, major production line because it can't get the components it wants from the United States. I would see a very little chance that there would be a connection between Chinese support on North Korea and a lessening of U.S. pressure on China over its industrial and trade policies. And that's simply because I think Washington recognizes that Beijing needs Washington on North Korea just as much as Washington needs Beijing on North Korea, frankly, but also because the long-term game for both Washington and Beijing is in the economic sphere, and Washington is is treating that with a great deal of seriousness and is not looking to sacrifice what it would see as, um, you know, working Americans' economic future um, over some sort of progress that they would uh, look to get with North Korea and probably be able to get with North Korea uh, with uh, Chinese support. So before we move on to Malaysia, which is a fascinating story, I just want to get your take on what the chances are that the U.S.-China trade tensions uh, will either get resolved uh, with something that diffuses the tensions or is likely to escalate to the point of hampering global growth. What's your what's your take on the odds on both these scenarios? Thanks, Lisa. So, so my sense is that uh, we are likely to see a at least a first round of implementation of tariffs, both Washington implementing tariffs on Chinese products and Beijing, of course, retaliating, uh, perhaps you know targeting U.S. companies if not uh, market access in U.S. goods. Uh, that is 
likely to happen, uh, and we're going to be watching closely over the summer uh, as we inch closer to to those uh, to the implementation of those tariffs. But this is really not just about tariffs, actually. I, I know markets are focused on tariffs, but really the bigger game here is the forthcoming investment restrictions that we're looking to see with the U.S. tightening um, CFIUS reforms and regulations, as well as looking at ways to block Chinese investment in strategic sectors, we're likely to see Beijing also retaliate in kind. That will probably have a larger fundamental impact on the economic trajectories of these two countries. If you just look at the the number or the, the amount of tariffs that are currently on the table under consideration, if the U.S. is going to implement, you know, 50 billion or 150 billion of, of, of tariffs, um, is that going to hurt China? Yes, but is it going to undermine Chinese growth? No. Um, what we're seeing with some of the economic projections, um, uh, such an implementation of tariffs will likely take anywhere from 0.3 to 0.5% off of Chinese growth. So um, enough to raise some eyebrows, but not enough to really shake China off course. Well, last year the U.S. ran a $375 billion merchandise trade deficit with China, and the chief Chinese trade negotiation, the econo uh, uh, negotiator, the economic envoy, I believe his name is Lu He, is scheduled to arrive in Washington in the coming days. Do you believe that it's possible that the Chinese will come forward with a proposal to purchase more China American goods that will help offset that trade deficit? So, yes, Leo He's uh, trip to Washington next week is certainly something that everybody should be watching. He is the economic muse of uh, Xi Jinping. He is the person that is perhaps most closely associated with uh, the industrial policies and practices that are of most concern to Washington. So certainly having him show up in Washington is indeed a good thing. But will that visit and will his offerings be enough to offset the coming uh, tariffs? My sense is probably not. Uh, Liu He, Xi Jinping, and other Chinese leaders are pretty clear on what Washington is asking for now following last week's delegation of an unprecedented seven U.S. cabinet members and um, government officials to Beijing uh, to unroll sort of Washington's demands of China. I would see this as Liu He coming to Washington to sort of outline the parameters of what those negotiations should be, perhaps to pressure President Trump or ask him to delay uh, the onslaught of tariffs until negotiations have been given a, a broader chance. But because the gulf between what Washington is expecting and what China is willing to do is so vast, my sense is that we're going to have to see a first round of tariffs before both sides will be ready to come to the negotiating table and really try to get a sense of whether there could be a, a solution to the current trade tensions and standoff. Meredith, I do want to get to the Malaysian elections because this was a huge upset. This was the uh, the pushing out uh, of office, an elected official that had been in for decades, and bringing in a 92-year-old leader. We're seeing a lot of pressure on some of the assets in Malaysia uh, with some analysts, for example, at Namura, uh, re reviewing his recommendation to buy assets in Malaysia because of this vote. Can you give us some color on what this means? for the region, for Malaysia, and uh, why this is, came as such a huge surprise. 
I would say it's a shock more so than a surprise. Uh, you know, even though Eurasia Group's call was that we, we were definitely seeing a lessening of support for Prime Minister Najib, but no one saw uh, Dr. Mahathir's uh, sweep of the elections because all of the cards were played against him and the opposition party that were looking to compete with UMNO, um, the, the ruling party and the ruling uh, BN uh, coalition in, in Malaysia. So think about this election in, in two ways. Uh, it's both positive uh, for markets in that you have a revitalization of an important Asian democracy where you're going to see a return to a more rigorous rule of law, probably improved governance uh, as the, the system of governance uh, and favors that were put in place by um, Prime Minister Najib is going to be dismantled. So that's, that's positive. But from a market's perspective on the negative, uh, you do have uh, with Najib's silent in power, a lot of the, yeah. the fiscal reforms that he was championing and leading on are likely to backtrack as well. So Dr. Mahathir, when he is sworn in, we expect that he's probably going to roll back the GST, which is unpopular domestically, but an yeah. important source of revenue for that country. We also expect that he's probably going to increase populist spending and, and probably look to review some of the infrastructure projects that right. Najib put in place, Meredith. including with China. Thank you so much for joining us. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. We've got to run Meredith Sumter, Eurasia Group Head of Research, Strategy and Operations, talking about uh, North Korea, China, the U.S., and Malaysia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.